On this episode of AvTalk, we chat with Ian Matthews, a flight maintenance engineer for a US-based cargo airline. Plus, a pilot makes a big mistake in Amsterdam, more pickle fork cracks, and we may see another Icelandic airline flying soon. Hello and welcome to episode 70 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I'm doing quite well. How are you good, sir? I am good. You are... Uh, you. I assume since you're leaving tomorrow on vacation, you are all packed, suitcase by the door, ready to go as soon as we finish recording. How long have we known each other? too long the answer yeah. there is too long yeah none of that is right <laughs> have you even considered packing yet well i was gonna do laundry today but then i didn't so i'll probably do that tomorrow you know pack at like 3 30 head out to the subway at maybe around 3 32 and then you know take it from there to be fair you've planned out your not planning yeah, exactly. The only difference is I have not actually taken the subway to JFK from my new apartment that I moved to in, in July, which is shocking because we're all the way here in early November. So I have to figure out how to do that. My interpretation is that there's some sort of card that you use and then you take a train. But again, I am no expert. Mm-mm, mm-mm, nope. All right. We'll look into that and report back in the, in the next episode. So, so where are you going? What are you doing? What is going on here? I am going to Madrid because. Good answer. Good answer. That's it. Uh, and that's who like it. are you flying? I am flying uh, Delta to Amsterdam on a 767-300 ER. Is there an ER in there for the 767s? E- either way. Connecting in Amsterdam to an Air Europa 787-8 down to Madrid. On the way back, less exciting. It's just Delta nonstop back to JFK. So if you had been, we're recording on Wednesday, the 6th of November, and if you had been on the flight today from Amsterdam to Madrid, you perhaps would have been significantly delayed. Yes. Thankfully, even if it was two days from now, this was the the later flight. I will be on the one of the earlier flights in the day. But yes, there was a bit of a, a kerfuffle, I guess you would call it, at Amsterdam today. Something we have seen before where someone on a flight deck does something accidentally, which triggers a whole bunch of crap going down at an airport. So earlier this afternoon at about two o'clock Eastern time, so I guess early mid-evening. Just after 6 p.m. in Amsterdam. Yeah, evening, early evening hours out in Amsterdam. All sorts of of things started happening at Schiphol about concourses being closed down and flights being inbound flights ending up in remote areas of the airport. And it turned out there was some sort of hijacking scare, which in reality – turned out to be a the flight crew of an Air Europa A330 was apparently showing off the how you manipulate squat codes on a transponder on the flight deck and apparently they ended up getting around to the digits that spell out 7500 which is the universal squat code for there is a hijacking occurring on this aircraft 
And once that is sent through to air traffic control, all hell breaks loose, basically. All sorts of protocols are followed. SWAT teams are called in. The airport doesn't quite shut down, but it's the aircraft is isolated. And it took them a good hour to figure out what was going on board that aircraft, which turned out to be absolutely nothing. And this is something we've actually seen somewhat recently, a few months ago at JFK here in New York. A JetBlue A321 was taxiing out to the runway and the pilots accidentally squawked 7500 and the same exact thing happened, which is annoying in that everyone reacts to it, things slow down, the airport could potentially shut down, but it's actually kind of refreshing to see that squawking that code has such a dramatic effect and the system just kind of works, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it. what was supposed to happen in in the event that this is transmitted is exactly what happened in, in both cases in, in Amsterdam and, and in New York a few months ago. And, you know, the, the authorities follow the proper protocols. I mean, even, you know, as they work to, I'm sure that they tried to understand the situation as, as quickly as possible. The, the pilots that kind of this happened to or, or caused this response were, I'm, I'm sure, you know, trying to to let everyone know that this was the case. But, you know, they always have to go through the, you know, the, the proper protocol to make sure that, you know, everything is in fact okay. Right. Uh, and, you, and that, you can't just unsquawk a hijacking code because that would defeat the purpose. Right. And so delayed flights in the even-numbered E-gates and all of the D-gates at Amsterdam for, for a, we'll say, 90 minutes at least, and there were some knock-on effects. But but everything was fine. It was a false alarm. In the airport, and you know, Schiphol and Air Europa did a, a very good job, I mean, you know, given the circumstances, of communicating what was happening in, in pretty quick uh, response times. So I, I thought both the airport and the airline did a very good job there. Yeah, I'm just happy that uh, they got that out of the way on Wednesday and not Friday because I, I don't want to deal with that. So you are flying Air Europa tomorrow and they uh, soon won't be Air Europa anymore. Oh, that's sad. They, Did I break it? <laughs> it's, it's all your fault. Yeah, it usually is. So IAG, the parent airline, we keep saying, you know, IAG, the parent, you know, the parent company of, you know, XYZ The parent company of half the just, airlines in the world that aren't also owned by the Lufthansa Group or Delta. Exactly. So taking Air Europa out of SkyTeam and bringing them over to One World or eventually or what have you. So IAG that owns British Airways, Iberia, Aer Lingus, Whaling, is intends to buy Air Europa and create some sort of super mega ultra hub in Madrid. Yeah, I'd have to imagine to satisfy the regulators, there are going to be some concessions that IAG will have to make. You can't just gobble up Air Europa and have such a dramatically high market share. I mean, they've already got Welling, they've got Iberia, now Air Europa. They're going to have a significant chunk of the traffic in and out and, and throughout Spain. So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on what parts of the airline or even Iberia they have to give away to other airlines. But this one kind of seemed out of left field. I know we've said the same thing with LATAM and Delta, but Air Europa, I didn't even know this was a possibility. They Air Europa is that kind of airline that's just, they're there, they perform well, they do their thing well, they make money, and they just kind of 
exist. It wasn't the kind of airline I expected to be outright gobbled up by a competitor. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't expect this either. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy I already happened to be booked on Air Europa this week and looking forward to my first and, I don't know, maybe my last flight on the airline. Yeah, I, I mean, the IAG says that they will be retaining the Air Europa brand for at least a while, and it'll be housed kind of under the Iberia brand. So I, I don't Which maybe... is kind of crazy at this point. There's already Welling, and then there's Iberia, and they have Level flying under Iberia as well, and now they'll have Air Europa also under Iberia. That's a lot of... A lot of stuff to think That's about. That's a lot of under Iberia. Yeah. I mean, it, if it works for them, then then good for them. But, uh, you know, obviously we'll I we'll can't imagine Ryanair is going to let this go through without a fight. That I don't know what to tell you. We'll see. We will see. We we indeed, we will. See. Let us go up to London. And next week, Qantas is doing the second of three Project Sunrise flights, the, the long one indeed. The London to Sydney test flight with their, they'll have the 100th anniversary livery 787-9, which is about to be delivered. That'll be doing that particular flight. So something to look forward by way of we will have updates from the flight deck once again. We'll be getting ACARS messages directly from the crew. And so we asked for uh, some more statistics this time and some more interesting uh, numbers so that we can that we can pass those along. So if you're looking forward to the the London Sydney flight, uh, that's something even more to to look forward to. And we've also got Air New Zealand saying, "Okay, we can go long haul too or ultra long haul too." Yeah, I completely forgot about this announcement until you mentioned it here in the show notes, but Air New Zealand already flies Auckland all the way to Chicago and now they're going to stretch that just a little bit farther to get to Beautiful, scenic Newark, New Jersey. Well, I mean, I have a feeling that most of the passengers won't be stopping in Newark, but that's yeah, just a guess. I mean, they'll be stopping there very temporarily. Well, they won't be ending their journey in Newark. That's true. That's very interesting. That no, no special test flights, not much other than a press release saying, hey, we're, we're, we're going to fly to Newark. Yeah. I mean, they've got the plane to do it and they'll be having their the new iteration of their their cabin that'll be part of it but uh, you know the, the 787-9 uh, is it they've already got the plane and and they're ready to go in uh, the the other thing about this though it won't take it won't start until October of next year so October 2020 uh, is is when they'll be starting it because they're they're waiting until they drop their Los Angeles London service yeah that's a good point i'm sure uh a few people will miss that very odd uh, relic of a flight. Interesting option to get from the West Coast out to London. And that ha they have local traffic rights on that. So if you wanted to fly from LA to London, you could book Air New Zealand. You could, yeah, you, you could book Air New Zealand and, and, and fly right along. Uh, Not anymore. Th that'll, be, that's'll be stopping at the same time that, that New York uh, Auckland service starts. That's a whole other interesting topic that we could talk about one day. Um, these, these weird kind of flights within a country or, or between two countries that an airline is not native to, like Qantas has the JFK to LA flight. They don't have local traffic, right? You can't fly that unless you're continuing on to uh, Sydney. 
or are somewhere else in Australia, but that's an interesting one. The same with Cathay between Vancouver and JFK. They'll be axing that shortly because they, they just don't need it anymore. Those tag-on fl- flights, are, they're just, they seem to be going away, I don't know if quickly is the... Philippines, same thing. The they used to fly from the Philippines to JFK, again, via Vancouver, but with the A350, they no longer need to do that. Yeah, they don't need it, and, and you know, why stop if you don't have to? Right. It's, it's a, a part of the ultra-long-haul flying experience that I think we're we're often forgetting about these days, is that with the ultra-long-haul flights comes the, the loss of some of these other oddball international or even intra-country flights that won't need to exist anymore. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's that would be interesting to talk about in, in a future episode about how the capabilities of aircraft have affected where airlines fly. Because yep. I mean, you, you don't need to go to Vancouver anymore. So how does that affect Vancouver? And and I'm sure you know there's a long history there that Jason will do some research on, and we will yeah. have a full yeah. report. That's what you can do in Madrid. You can go yeah. to Madrid. You can do some research on these things, and then you can come back and you can fill us in next yeah. episode. Some, I mean, some of these flights didn't need to because Cathay hasn't had to stop in Vancouver in, in decades. It was one of their, I think, five daily flights happened to, but for the most part, these flights their their days are numbered. Yes. Let us take a quick break, and we will come back and chat with Ian Matthews, who is a flight maintenance engineer. And it's we're going to one. we're going to learn what that is, and hear some great uh, some great stories. So we will be right back with Ian Matthews. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone, and we are joined by Ian Matthews, a flight maintenance engineer for a U.S.-based cargo airline, and that's as specific as we'll get, and, and I'm sure some of the the more attuned listeners will figure it out pretty quickly. But Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, a real pleasure to have you. Hey, uh, it's glad to be on and big fan of the show, so it's it's great that I'm able to come and give you guys some insight into my little world we're thrilled to have you because I don't know about Jason, but I knew that that certain aircraft and certain airlines carried engineers on board on a regular basis. But my knowledge of that had always been uh, kind of uh, like the Antonov airlines, where where you know you've got kind of a very unique aircraft, so you need people who are extremely familiar with the end, you know, the, the engineers and things like that, where you're flying to unimproved airfields or things like that. I had no idea that that major U.S. airlines were also doing this. So even before we've talked, I've learned something new. Well, that is true. I have met some of the Antonov engineers and. I found out that our jobs are actually pretty similar, except that they're a lot more rough and tumble when it comes to getting things done. But as far as we go in the cargo airlines, we are most of them do use flight engineers because it allows us to uh, go places where there might not be maintenance available. So it opens up our world a little bit more for clients. They like having that FME on board so that there's no... If we have to go to like Chile or Venezuela or the middle of Italy somewhere where there's there's no normal maintenance there, we can do that. And uh, people like that. So aside from it 
aside from it being a good thing for the operating airline having a, an engineer on board, it, it, you're saying it's literally an advertising perk. If I'm uh, someone looking to ship something and your airline says, oh, we have someone on board. So if our aircraft is a minor technical issue in whatever random place you're sending us to, we can get that resolved. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's really cool. So let's start from from the beginning here, and and why don't you give us kind of the textbook definition or, or the the resume definition of what you do, and then we'll get into kind of the day to day stuff. Interview for your own job. Yeah. What do you do? Um, <laughs> as far well, as Bob, yeah, as far as what uh, the textbook definition of an FME would be, it'd be to uh, ensure the integrity of an aircraft at the maintenance level, complete daily and terminating service checks. I service maintain the aircraft in between stops, and I work with the captain and the flight crew to ensure that the aircraft's operating safely and effectively. That's the way the FAA looks at us, at least. So when I'm thinking of a flight engineer, I'm thinking of, of old school aircraft, like the 747 1 and 200s, the, I guess the L-1011, where there was, it was a third flight deck crew member up in the flight deck, obviously, yeah. that would be monitoring monitoring uh, fuel systems, all, all that kind of stuff that's now been replaced by automation. Your description of a flight engineer is something completely different. So tell us what you do on, on, a, on a typical day, basically. Well, there's an important distinction to make between flight engineer and flight maintenance engineer. And, and we've actually, our company's been talking about this lately because they'd like to move towards a known crew member for our FMEs. The TSA and the FAA recognize a flight engineer as a airman, and we are, as flight maintenance engineers, mechanics seen by the FAA as people other than airmen. There's so, are you technically a passenger on board? Uh, no, we are crew members. I am given a uh, a high security badge that most, like most airlines, give their pilots. It's a holographic badge. It has my fingerprints and information on it. However, uh, in the eyes of the FAA, I am someone other than crew or other than a airman, which leads to some technical jargon when it comes down to defining who we are. But otherwise, when we're we're doing our job as far as flight maintenance engineers. There's a lot of work that comes down towards uh, when we land, we check out, I'll always do the oils. Whether it's a GE or a Pratt, you have to do the oils. It depends on, on how heavy of a cargo load you have. So you come out, you do the oils first, start your walk around, check the tires, sell all the, the normal stuff that a pilot would also complete uh, inspecting the aircraft. And then it comes down to uh, if we have to do it daily or not, checking all that out. So you guys want to know what it is I do outside of the textbook definition to get back on track right, here. Right, right. Just kind of like a day-to-day a -day kind of thing. Yeah, well, uh, we'll... Start it by the, the start of the day. Come out to a cold aircraft. Yeah, I have to be out to the aircraft four hours prior to the uh, flight crew. So usually you come out to a cold aircraft and you'll have ground power. If not, then you start the APU. But you come out, do your walk around, and make sure there's nothing leaking. Make sure the tire pressures are good. Some of them have tire pressure monitors. Mine doesn't. So I got to go stick all the tires and make sure they're good. Once everything's visually good, I clear the aircraft and start to power up, let her warm up and fight off any problems that occur while it's trying to boot. There's always, with the 400, especially the ones that are in the older years, there's always something that goes on with them that you'd have to troubleshoot and figure out what's wrong with it. It's just little gremlins when it starts. They don't like to be cold. 
that would be the 747 400 yeah, okay. yep and and you you mentioned that your aircraft so so am i Am I correct in understanding that that you work uh, for your airline, you have a particular aircraft? Yes. And as you mentioned, some of the more astute listeners might be able to pick up on this. We are all given our own aircraft that we're assigned to. We don't get traded around like the flight crews. And we found that that works a lot better for getting intimate with your aircraft and its systems. So... uh, Someone that's been on an aircraft for 10 years can fix a problem lickety-split, whereas someone that is newer to the aircraft or maybe substituting might take 30 or 40 minutes, which could cause a delay. So it behooves us to be assigned to the aircraft. That is super interesting and, and really so contrary to anything else I can think of in commercial aviation. Like you said, flight crews, cabin crews, nobody is ever assigned to a particular aircraft. It's almost more like a, a military kind of thing where like your aircraft is your aircraft. But that begs the question, what do you do if your aircraft is down for extended maintenance or AOG somewhere and there's nothing you can do? Do you just hang out with it? Now, I pride myself in saying that my aircraft has never gone AOG while I'm on it, but that's technically a lie. We have been AOG due to a rubber reversion on a tire. The tire delaminated and damaged a wing door. And when that happens, we have travel at our, our company set us up with a hotel We start preparing the aircraft for whatever repairs we can complete at the moment until parts arrive. And then we go back to the hotel and wait. So, and then once parts arrive, we come back out to the aircraft and get it completed. What about for extended maintenance? If it's going in for a a C or a D check or something that could take days or or weeks, are are you sidelined or will they really have you do something else during that time? Well, it depends on the FME. Or are you helping out? Huh? Or are you helping out when it's in for heavy That's what I was going to get to. We do help out. Uh, my airline operates their own air, air maintenance base. They have a couple hangars up north, and they have full operation, their own engine shop. Everything's done in-house. It's really an amazing setup. It's great to see, and uh, working with the line crews is, is great. So we get a hotel near where the maintenance base is, and every day I just come out and, and help the line crews when we're doing a, an A or a C check. And there's hangar crews for the extended, like D-Check. My aircraft just came out of D-Check recently. And I was in and out all the time helping the crews out. Uh, They had questions. I had answers. I'm sure there were times where they said, please explain yourself what the hell happened here and how did you fix it? Well, there was a time when they saw a rubber chicken stuffed up in one of the panels just kind of poking out. And they said, what the hell is that doing up there? And I feel like you're going to have to explain that. Please explain the rubber chicken. Okay, there's a couple FMEs that have done this. So when you take off and the aircraft starts to depressurize as the altitude increases, they kind of make a little noise. So it's it's just a fun little joke that we have going on. We keep it. It depends on, again, depends on the flight crew. It's not something we're supposed to have up there. So we, we take it down and put it away. But in that case, it got stuffed up in a panel somehow and was poking its head out. I think one of the FMEs were, one of the other ones were playing a prank on me. The old depressurizing rubber chicken routine. Yeah, that's, ah, that's what yes. it appears yes. to be. hasn't? Uh, <laughs> I, I first saw that on another aircraft with a fellow FME. And after I saw it, one showed up in my aircraft. I don't know who brought it in, but, you know, they just kind of appear. 
So you're responsible for fixing minor repairs and things like that. And, and I understand, you know, having a toolkit and things like that. But at what point do you go from, I can fix this with the materials that I have in the aircraft that we, we've flown to, you've flown wherever you've flown, South America or, or Asia or somewhere, and you're on the ground there and, and something has happened. How much are you bringing with you to, to be able to fix the aircraft versus, okay, I know it's wrong, but now we have to order parts? We fly with something called a flyaway kit. And in our airline, they are multi-level drawers, basically giant filing cabinets full of parts with an index of everything that's in it. So we can just type in a part number and find it. And uh, they, we've got a couple thousand parts in those. I've never had a case where I said, I can't fix this, but that's mostly due to there's always a station nearby. It can get me a part within two hours or so. I'd say we, losing a generator and an APU, that will become a deferrable item. There's nothing in our FAK that can fix that. Mostly large mechanical items is what we cannot fix, but those are also items that we plan the lifetime of them and can predict when they're going to fail. So you're talking about things like, you know, engines or, or the APU or something like that, where they can be kind of, you know, swapped out and then maintained off the aircraft versus, you know, like a panel or a, a seal or something like that. Yeah. The big thing with maintenance is is being able to stay within the, the legal limits of our, our minimum equipment list and our configuration deviation lists. So... Like uh, I said, we had some gear door damage from rubber reversion, and we were able to fly out of there on a configuration deviation list by saying, look, our, our door is damaged, so here's our operating limits. So when it comes down to it, sometimes it's not about the ability to repair it, but able to figure out what the legal limits to fly the aircraft is and get it somewhere where it can be repaired. So for folks who aren't necessarily necessarily familiar with the minimum equipment list. And, and, and I, I'm a little familiar with that, but the, the configuration deviation list is, is one that I'm not really familiar with at all. Can you explain what those two are and, and kind of the differences between them? Well, a minimum equipment list means to fly the aircraft at max performance or at least minimally affected performance. It's a list of items that can be in-op or missing from the aircraft. So... If we have a, a drive generator and an engine, a, a part that makes power for the rest of the aircraft, let's say we have one drive generator fail, I can put that on a, a deferral with the minimum equipment list, which allows the aircraft to operate safely and, in that case, at full power. A configuration deviation list has to do with this, the airframe of the aircraft. Let's say we have a little fairing on the door that's damaged or missing, we can put that on CDL. Or if one of the uh, seal depressors on the cargo doors gets damaged, I can put that on a carryover or CDL, which lets people know, hey, it's been damaged. At next day check, it has to be fixed. So the configuration deviation says something's broken, the airplane can still fly, but the next time we're basically at home, yeah, this is getting fixed before the aircraft does anything else. Yes. Gotcha. That's fascinating that the redundancies built into aircraft, and we've talked about this, I mean, through so many episodes, is always interesting to me, but but I'm super interested in, in how you deal with those things. So this is this is really fun to talk about, for me at least. You you bring up a good point with the uh the 
the redundancies on an aircraft. The the seven four seven in itself, the two hundred and the four hundred, is such a great aircraft for uh, for people to get started on, especially in this this field. It's a very forgiving aircraft. It we joke that you know you can you can make a mistake and not get thrown in prison with a 747 it's there's not a lot of ways you can bring one down just it's so redundant and so well engineered it's it's kind of responsible for the safety in almost all air, modern aircraft today you know it helps with the the four engines yep. is that really where the redundancy is coming from that you're talking about or or is it just kind of the systems overall the systems overall the hydraulic systems are all they're dependent on each other, but they're also very much able to run the aircraft one by one. The gear, I mean, the aircraft could make a, a full weight landing missing wheels. There's a lot of just every single system in the aircraft can revert to another system if it needs to. Uh, even the, the zone temperature controller, which I've had issues with, uh, which controls the temperature in the upper deck and, and main decks, when it fails, it's got backups upon backups to keep make sure that the temperature is kept just right in that aircraft. Comfortability is it's it's always important. The the seven four you work on is that an original freighter or was that a passenger for aircraft that was converted to a freighter at a later point? That's a good question because a, a lot of people they don't know about what the BCF is, which is a, a Boeing converted freighter, which is what mine is. So it was at one time a passenger bird. There are a couple of different configurations. I think mine is one of four original configurations that Boeing played with and then we ended up with. Are there any advantages, disadvantages to having a, a BCF as opposed to a dedicated freighter? Well, the factory freighters have not a lot of room up top. They have a galley and they can seat six in the back and they have two punks. My airline has an STC that they created to put uh, four bunks in the back, which is great because now we can sleep two crew members and two FMEs or two crew members, an FME and a loadmaster. I particularly like that. It's it's really comfortable. Now, the BCFs have a whole lot of room up top. They can seat 12 people. That's not including the crew. They have a galley, a restroom up top, and they have bunks set up on the main deck. So that we can also sleep four, two pilots, uh, an FME and a loadmaster, but the bunk is on the main deck with the seats, so you got to put up with some people talking or walking around and opening stuff up and cooking food. It's it's a little bit annoying, but the space is nice. And don't forget about that all-important uh, nose cargo door, which the BCF would not have, it right? It does not have, yep. And uh, it that was when I first started this job. I knew about 747s, but I did not know they had nose cargo doors, so that was... I was pretty awestruck when I saw that. I, w I will say that's one of the, the coolest things I've ever gotten to do is operate one of those. That was a lot of fun. And I was like, this is so – because, I mean, this giant door is closing with the push of a button. But it's crazy to stand at the front of the 747 and look all the way back to, to think that you could you know, haul something that long. Yeah, it's a major helpful item, especially with moving bulk cargo. Uh, there's a lot of things that we've moved with a couple clients in uh, the northern areas of Europe they love that nose loader and uh it it's it's a great selling point so i don't get to do those runs because i don't have a nose loader <laughs> so i feel like we're passing by one of the most important questions and it's especially relevant since you are on the same aircraft all the time it's your aircraft what's its name it has you have to have named the aircraft right <laughs> 
it has various names depending on its temperament. We'll we'll put it at that. <laughs> um, we refer that, to that's a good answer. Yeah, we refer to her by her number. Myself and my partner, we we call her by her number. There was a name given to it by its former owner. It was the name of the city that it was registered from. But that name no longer is is crested on the side of it. Now it's it's just its nose number on the front. Interesting. I, I figured you would have had your own pet name for the aircraft, something to yell out and and shout when something isn't quite working the way you want. <laughs> well, I've yelled at it by its number. Remember, this is a family show. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I got you. I've yelled its number out before. I've never cursed out my aircraft, though. I'm I have a very good relationship with her, and I don't want to have a bad one. So you are on board, I mean, you said four hours before before departure. And so how long are you there after landing? I mean, it, it sounds like you've got the, you know, kind of the, the, the first guy in and last guy out part of the job. It kind of, yeah. There's two ways to, to do the getting off part. The first thing is that in the freight world, the planes don't stop. They'll run for six days constantly without turning off. I will turn the engines off, but when I get a chance, I'll shut my aircraft down for an hour or two just to let it get its brains back together and bring it back up. They do not stop. So I land, the crews get off, we unload, we load back up. I complete a daily check or a terminating service if I have to and complete any maintenance that might come up. And we're back up in the air for eight eight to nine hours. So you said the aircraft you know, can be on for six days. Are you also on for six days? Yep. Yeah, that, that's the, the longest stretch I've done is seven days straight without getting off the aircraft. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know. How, I, my brain doesn't even, my brain can't even process that because we've talked with pilots and a cargo pilot, Ken Hulk, before as well, who, you know, talks about having kind of a he he flies a lot in Asia, so he'll fly to Asia as a passenger and then do his few days of flying, you know, in Asia and then fly back to the U.S. as a passenger. But but you're spending up to a week, who knows where, across how many time zones? I mean, that how do you figure out where you are? Uh, I mean, not not like looking at a but like like a body clock kind of thing. Well, my partner was also my teacher. He's our uh, one of our oldest FMEs. He's he's really experienced, and uh, he taught me when I came on board. You set your watch to Z time, and you don't get off it. And uh, <laughs> that's that's pretty much what you do. You just start converting to Z time, and you don't have to deal with jet lag. You keep the window blinds down in the aircraft, so it's always dark, so you never know what time of day it is. Now, when you land, you open up the windows to get some light, but otherwise, it's it's generally just paying attention to the Z time and budgeting your time out for sleep. When you get in the air, you go to sleep, catch up on it. And when you land, you never know what's going to happen. So it's you better be up on your reserves. Wow. That Yeah. <laughs> now, a lot of FMEs are probably laughing. If they're listening to this, they're, they're probably laughing at what I'm saying because uh, – we do have ways to take care of ourselves uh, on the aircraft. A lot of the potable water service underneath the aircraft, we have little shower heads we plug into it to get the grease and stuff out of our hair. You know, we take a little shower underneath the aircraft. I've done that before. All of us carry a mess kit to Hope, clean ourselves up. Hopefully, the, the warmer the the warmer climates. Yeah, uh, not uh, not not landing in you know northern Canada or anything like that, taking a shower outside. I've had to do it at Gander before. 
Ooh. Yeah. I had a uh, sky draw all over me and uh, I needed to get myself cleaned up. But uh, Bahrain and Kuwait, those areas, yeah, we it's definitely more enjoyable there. So how involved are you with with the cargo itself? I, I mean, is that something where you don't have any responsibility involved in that? Or, or is part of your job kind of making sure, is there any kind of loadmaster type responsibilities part of your job? Or is that just, you know, that's somebody else's job and, and you're going to let them do it? On a piece of paper, it is someone else's job, and I'm going to let someone else do it. But we are the jack of all trades of the aircraft, and we know the aircraft inside and out. So when the loadmaster has an issue, they have to come to us for help. Commonly, uh, the locks that hold the cargo down can get jammed. I have to go take them apart and repair them. Uh, the power drive units that steer the cargo around the main deck, those need maintenance every now and then. And occasionally, the, the loadmaster is just under a lot of pressure and I don't have much going on. So I'll just stand back and help him out. Like what are some of the more interesting cargo, more interesting cargoes from kind of a, a maintenance perspective? Is there anything that like after you've hauled, you know that you're going to have to do something because, you know, there's always, you know, like anytime we haul this kind of particular cargo, it, it breaks the floor or something like that. Well, the good thing is, is the clients we have are usually pretty good about their what they put on the aircraft. A lot of them, they have it science down so hard that they don't even need a load master. They use a computer to load everything up, and it's accurate every time. But I have had cases like um, we got 45,000 pounds of cold-rolled stainless steel on a pallet, and that was so heavy that it punched out the rollers underneath of it, and we had to use a come-along to get it off the aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> so that was All that right. was an adventure in and of its own. But thankfully, my airline also creates their own ball mat rollers because it's a known problem on the freighters that the, the rollers break. So we make our own upgraded rollers. So my whole aircraft got a whole new roller mat, which is a much stronger system now. That feels like an odd thing to commonly break on a freighter. It seems like the kind of thing that should be right every time. Yeah, I do. And I, after looking at the original roller, I I believe that there was good intentions in, in making it lighter so there wouldn't be much as a, a weight penalty, but the design of it is just not strong enough for heavier cargo. And and you guys end up hauling the heavier stuff so you get in-house roll. That's pretty smart to – something's not working. Well, let's just make it in-house. And that, that's pretty great to have the, the ability to do that. Yeah. I've noticed that amongst uh, a lot of cargo airlines is when there's a niche that needs to be filled, the airline operator usually tries to fill it in-house. It behooves them and they get to make a little money on the side doing it. So before we let you go, we always ask folks, especially when we talk to, to people that work in the cargo industry, what are some of the, you know, some of the, the strangest things that have happened to you, like, you know, weird things? I mean, you're, we're talking about maintenance and engineering, so what, some of the weird things that have broken or the, a strange cause of something needing to be repaired. Well, we just had one recently where we took off and the cabin immediately went frigid. It was absolutely frigid. And then it went really hot and then really cold. And we didn't do a turn back. It was it was standable. We, the, the crew was able to fly with it like that. But it was a seven-hour flight, entirely uncomfortable. And I was tearing the aircraft apart on the phone with maintenance control and we were looking at a temperature sensor and all this stuff. The captain comes back and says, 
Hey, did you mean to leave the uh, trim air switch turned off in the cockpit? And I just looked at them. It uses the trim air from the engines to heat the air up in the aircraft, the, the, the conditioned air, to make it more livable. So the aircraft wasn't able to regulate temperature because I had the trim air switch turned off or, or someone had turned it off. So all it was was the press of a switch. Uh, we were <laughs> we were about to ground the aircraft over this. So all, at least all someone was, found was it. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's that's where the relationship between the FME and the, the pilots is absolutely crucial. We both have to communicate and know what's going on with the aircraft because if there's a miscommunication or a disconnect, that's the sort of stuff that happens. Ian Matthews, a flight maintenance engineer for a large U.S.-based cargo airline. Thanks so much for joining us. This this has been a fascinating conversation, and I've enjoyed it. Jason, I hope you enjoyed it, and I, I think our indeed. listeners are uh, are going to to thoroughly enjoy it. So, thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Welcome back. Jason, do you feel like you learned something? I learned several things at minimum in that conversation. That was <laughs> super interesting. It, it, it was. I mean, it, the craziest thing to me about that is, is you know, he, it's his airplane. He doesn't he, work for the airline. I mean, he works is, for it, the he works airplane. For that airplane has literally showered underneath said airplane. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know. Not uh, like I mean, him I don't like I, drink that water. Let alone uh, bathe in it. <laughs> I get it. Like if you're if you're covered in you know who knows what, you want to get clean as soon yeah, as possible. I know. I, I, I totally understand it. And if you have an interesting, weird, or otherwise unknown job in the aviation industry, send an email to Ian, and he loves reading emails. I do. I, I love reading emails. But if you do, and you do want to come talk to us about your weird or interesting job, podcast at fr24.com, and we would love to hear from you. Speaking of uh, weird and interesting things, we're back to pickle forks. Pickles. Pickles, yes. More of them have cracks. That's not a good thing. Yeah. So I think the latest numbers are Ryanair has grounded three 737s along with the same. Qantas actually has also grounded three 737s. Southwest, I'm not sure about their exact number, but they have also grounded a number of aircraft to replace the pickle fork. Uh, not a huge number of aircraft worldwide. It's a very small percentage of older 737NG models. But again, this is a part that never should have been breaking or cracking in the first place ever in the life of a 737. And they think they've determined that it was a manufacturing issue um, that made this part less strong than it should be, but um, not a good look in the middle, in the midst of the max grounding right now. But in the grand scheme of things, it's still a pretty minor number of aircraft grounded. Yeah, and and they they've developed a a thorough inspection regime and, and a pretty quick turnaround as far as fixing the aircraft. I, I know that uh, the goal. Southwest, Ryanair have theirs into Victorville. And, and if I understand correctly, Boeing's setting up uh, AOG centers uh, in Europe and Asia as well for any 
any of the affected 737 uh, NG. And remember, this only affects 737 NGs. This isn't anything that, that, that affects the 737 MAX, which has obviously its own you know, set of issues that we talked about at length in a, a number of episodes, most recently our previous episode, our special episode. So, so this is, seems relatively limited in scope. Right, uh, but it does mean they will have to continue inspecting the pickle forks on the NG um, basically until the end of time when these aircraft are, are, are as long as they're still operating, which is something that I, I don't doesn't feel like that they were inspecting regularly because they were never supposed to break. Yeah, I mean, I mean when it's a, a part that is supposed to last the life of the aircraft and you're not supposed to see cracks or, or anything like that, then yeah, it's... This isn't good. Yeah, and refresh my memory, I think it was a Chinese outfit that was converting a passenger 73 to a freighter, and in that process is the only reason why they discovered that issue. Correct. So it wasn't actually Boeing themselves that determined that this was a thing and put out a service bulletin or whatever. This was someone really digging into an aircraft to convert it to a freighter happened to spot this. Yeah, the BCF conversions for the 737-800s and there have been, I think those have been going on for, was it ASL, I think? I was I the, the so. first yeah. one that, that took theirs, and it was just last year. So this is a relatively new process, the freighter conversions, uh, passenger freighter conversions. So I, I guess it's good that they caught it earlier rather than later. Yeah, and um, hey, it proves that the system works. Someone found yeah. a thing, someone reported a thing, a solution was found, and inspections were made quickly. So there's silver lining there. There you go. Along the same lines, good news to report in the recent string of A220 engine failures, the BEA announced today, the French uh, Accident Investigation Board announced today that they had, through their volunteers, that they, and we talked about this in a previous episode, they were looking for volunteers in France to basically wander around the French countryside and try and find engine parts from the Swiss A220 that had an engine failure in July, the HB JCM, which was flying from Geneva to to London, suffered an engine failure southeast of Paris. It was uncontained, and so they started looking for the parts. Day one, they found a bunch of parts. So the search grid worked, and, and they found these parts, and so now they're kind of one step closer. They're still looking for additional parts, but now they're one step closer to figuring out exactly what was happening with these engines. And then they will eventually issue their report from the string of, the, you know, they'll all be separate reports, but there were the three in relative quick succession that all affected the A220. So the restrictions that have been placed on the operations of the A220 involve some cruise limits where the the engines can't be set above, the N1 setting can't go above 94% above 29,000 feet, um, and, and they also have to uh, to be cognizant of, of some auto throttle settings while they look into the, the root cause, which may indeed be software related, something I, I think we've been talking about more and more with aircraft of... of different parts of the aircraft, engines and, and aircraft. Uh, so, you know, definitely a, an ongoing theme. Yeah. I was just happening to be looking uh, on the site now for any A220s operating in Europe to see um, at what altitude they might be flying. And I just happened to 
stumble upon HBJBI and its call sign right now just happens to be Bonjour. Okay. It is not flying, but it is just moving around on the ground with the call sign Bonjour. So eh, that's something. Because the maintenance likes to have fun too. Yes. Thank you, Geneva Ground, whomever put that in. That's that's funny. <laughs> so we missed what was apparently a rather significant accident last year. Ooh, uh, we're, we're changing gears real hard here, aren't we? I mean, I'm, I'm working my way through our list here, pal. And you and I both apparently missed this. And the final report came out this week on a SmartLink's A320 that was practicing touch and goes that had a significant loss of control and lost both engines, but managed to land safely. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit more to this story than merely lost two engines, isn't there? Well, I mean, it, normally the cause of an incident or, or accident would have been the loss of two engines, but the loss of two engines was part of the... That was, part a, of, that was it, a symptom. It wasn't even that, the cause. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, uh, it, Jason, I will let you kind of walk us through what the report details a little bit. Okay. Well, I don't have the report in front of me, and unfortunately, the, the Flight Global article, which I linked to on Twitter earlier, seems to now be behind a paywall. But this aircraft was doing – on a flight training mission, basically. There were five trainees on board. They were doing touch and goes, which is an extremely normal procedure where basically you do a completely normal approach. You touch down on the aircraft, and you throttle up, and you take off again. No big deal. Happens all the time in flight training. On one of the final touch and goes of of uh, this run, something did not go quite according to plan. Apparently, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm reciting this off memory. The elevator system on the aircraft, which is basically the tail assembly, which deflects the the wind and makes the airplane really go up or down, locked in the neutral position. Something happened where the computer just kind of said, nope, no more. I don't, I, I'm not going up. I'm not going down. So the aircraft, as it reached the end of the runway, they had to manu- – uh, apparently they, they gained some altitude and they manually trimmed the aircraft to get back in the air a little bit. And then unfortunately, they lost altitude. The engine pods slammed into the ground, but they ended up gaining altitude again. So they were back in the air. But they had, at this point, severe damage to both engines to the point where I believe the right engine actually – there was an engine fire in that aircraft in that engine, which they determined that they did not want to shut down. They wanted the thrust, which the um, report actually notes was a, a good call because they were able to get their crippled aircraft back to the approach, back onto the runway for a safe landing with some st- – Substantial damage to the aircraft. Both engines actually completely failed on the approach. They had the the rat the ram air turbine out, which provides basically last ditch emergency power to the aircraft computers and hydraulic systems. Uh, there were only a couple minor injuries on board, but it I believe the aircraft is going to be scrapped because it has not flown in the last year and a half at this point. But this is one of those kind of worst case freak scenario incidents where thankfully everyone was able to walk away. Yeah, they did uh, an incredible job. And we will uh, put a link to the the final report from the Estonian Accident Investigation Board 
into the uh, into the show notes because they have in there some uh, screen grabs from the airport's security cameras, which shows the aircraft touching down well before the runway. Because they basically they took off and then looped back around as best they could and landed in the opposite direction that they took off. Right, 150 uh, meters short of runway. Right. So they made it back onto the runway eventually, but that was after the aircraft had touched down, uh, and they eventually slid off uh, off the the end of, or not the end of the the side of the runway. Yeah, uh, we we will link to it. Away. Get, I don't expect anyone to read the full report because it's lengthy, but this was dramatic. I um, think you sell our audience short, Jason. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's like dozens and dozens of pages, but skim and look at the pretty pictures. This was a hell of an incident, and I'm shocked we didn't hear about it until today. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we meaning you and me, you and not I, yeah, no, the we, royal we, everyone else. Someone must have heard of it because this is a, a full report issued. But this one seems like it really snuck under the radar. I have to agree. Okay, then. Garmin did something truly impressive. Garmin did a, a hell of a thing that they've been working on for. Uh, about a decade now? So it's been a while is what you're saying? It's been in development. I would like for you to tell everyone what they've done. Okay, here we go. I'll, I'll lead this podcast to the promised land once more. So Garmin, I, I did not know this was a thing that they were doing, but Garmin is a, a manufacturer of, of uh, an avionics suite for general aviation aircraft. And on two new aircraft, I think it's the Cirrus Vision 2, did I get that right? Mm-hmm. And the Piper Piper M, M something, but there, there's one single engine jet and a, uh, a one turboprop, both general aviation small aircraft, both announced at the same time that with this new Garmin avionics suite, they are able to completely autonomously land themselves with the push of a button. And for you who are commercial aviation driven with uh, Boeing and Airbus, you're saying, who cares about this? Autoland has existed since the L-1011 in the 70s. This is nothing new. That is true, but those systems rely on ILS and they require a fair bit of ground infrastructure and oversight to work. This system called, um, quite simply, just Autoland is an emergency backup system for if the sole pilot of a general aviation aircraft becomes incapacitated for whatever reason, the passengers can quite literally push a button and the avionics suite on board in a matter, I don't even think it's a full second, does the math to find the nearest suitable airport, the nearest suitable runway, takes into account all the weather using SATCOM data terrain data nearby to, you know, not fly into a mountain. It looks for the nearest GPS approach to an airport. It does not require a full-on ILS system. Once it it autonomously communicates with air traffic control, that's a one-way communication, I believe, in that it basically announces, hey, there's an issue on board. I am flying into this runway get everyone out of my way. And once it does that, it um, circles if it needs to burn off fuel, if it needs to burn off altitude or speed, it then lands itself, stops, Yeah, it has auto brake capability, auto thrust capability, then turns off the engines and tells the passengers how to open the door and walk away. I mean, I'm impressed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
it's I mean, I got this press release. I, w- I was still in bed, I think, on, on Monday morning when I got this. I'm reading through it. And I'm like, I go, holy crap, this is kind of freaking amazing that Garmin has been working for, I think, close to a decade on this capability where it, it's literally a passenger pushes a button and the plane does everything else. And it's really, I want everyone to kind of go online and, and watch the video demonstrations of this where it really in a soothing, relaxed way, says, Autoland has been activated. I'm now searching for the nearest acceptable airport. And it, it's, it says time to the approach, time to destination, spells out exactly what everything, what is going on board that aircraft in as de-stressful as a way possible. And it's, I think, our best look at the future of autonomous flight we've had to date. Well, I mean, and I think it's great that they did their best to make this, you know, kind of de-stress as much as possible. Because, of course, if you're pressing this button, something has gone horribly wrong. This isn't like a the weather is bad, you know, we're going to, to do an auto land in a 747. This is the pilot has been incapacitated. The plane now has to land itself. Right. It also, I believe, has the capability to determine if there's been hypoxia incident on board, if the pilot is unconscious, if there isn't any sort of control surface movement for an extended period, it will automatically descend. And that is a feature that has already existed on a number of aircraft. This takes it a step further and will actually just fully land the aircraft, which is kind of amazing and peek into our not-too-distant future, I think, into commercial aviation, it's a thing. I, definitely... I, I, I feel like that's certainly a, a more extended topic for a, a another episode. Yeah. I, I really am quite shocked that something like this exists. In the here and now, it's not fully certified by the FAA. Good luck to Garmin because you you picked a hell of a time to try to get something as complex as that certified given everything else that is going on in the industry. But if you would like to have us on board to try out the Autoland capabilities, we would. I'm sure Ian would be more than happy to try that. I would be thrilled to try that out. Yeah, there's still some questions that I they have not answered that I have submitted but have not heard back. I think I asked, um, not Piper, I think I asked Cirrus this, but how does it, does it take into account NOTAMs or, or anything along that line? Like it, it's one thing to have a database of what runways and airports are nearby, but is it also aware of what runways might be closed or anything of that nature? Because you, you, even in an emergency situation, you would not want to land on a runway that is not currently open, would you? No, that would be a bad thing to do. Or if you know, you're going to land in poor weather conditions. So you, you would obviously have to take... I mean, obviously this point, if the jet's landing itself, you don't really care about visibility, but you still care about you know other meteorological conditions. So you know obviously there's it, it there's does meteor take weather into account feeding into, into that. So but but I mean if you can take that into account, you can obviously start taking other things into account at at a certain point. Right. It's definitely a very vivid here and now look into the not too distant future of commercial aviation. Super interesting in my book. And I'm sure we'll be talking much more about this uh, in future episodes, for sure. Shall we 
wrap up the show with two bits of aviation, two small things of interest, I guess. One, LL retired at 747 Fleet. They've been an operator for nearly 50 years. And to do so, they drew a model of a 747 over the Mediterranean Sea this week, a neat send-off to the Queen of the Skies uh, by LL. So I, I thought that was pretty fun. And the final thing that we should talk about in this episode is your favorite Mid-Atlantic island and mine may be getting another airline. Not to be confused with the other new airline that it might be regaining. So the branding similarities notwithstanding, an announcement was handed from on high that Play Airlines, P-L-A-Y in all capital letters, so they are really, really serious about this, how, how they're going to play. They're restarting or starting service out of Iceland and Play Airlines, the, the folks who are, who are managing this or, or trying to get this off the ground are ex-WOW folks but also some people from Air Iceland Atlantic. So the, this actually has a chance. And from what I've read, it doesn't, sound, it doesn't sound dumb. So there is an important distinction between the two still seemingly hypothetical reboots of WowWare. One is the one we've already discussed, still called WowWare. That is a completely new operation that has just bought the intellectual property of Wow Air. So that new entity has the Wow Air branding, has the, the purple paint job, the Wow Air name, but that's it. Everything else they do is completely new, a complete reboot. Play Airlines is basically the same crew, the same people, the same ideas behind Wow, all without the intellectual property. But a very similar intellect. All, basically all without the um, original CEO who led them astray down the wormhole of, of acquiring A330s they didn't need and couldn't afford and couldn't pay for, but a much more measured launch. This time they will start in the not-too-distant future with flights simply between Iceland and Europe, I believe, and then next year they will also operate over to the US once they require uh, acquire the rights to actually do so. But the Play Airlines revival of WOW Air seems much more measured, much more practical, much more thought out than the utterly ridiculous reboot of WOW Air using the WOW Air branding, who will now just be transporting uh, dead fish in freighters eventually, maybe one day, we don't really know. Yeah, that, that's all I got. So uh, from dead fish to... Uh... Nothing, really. You know, I, I feel like any episode we can end with dead fish and freighters is, is a good one. Yeah, it's time to check in for my flight to Madrid. And on that note, this has been episode 70 of Avtalk. Oh, it's, it's been something. I am Ian Pechnik here, uh, I guess, as always, with... Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening. Thank you.